Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. People really want to feel like they're in control. It's like really scary to to feel like anything is outside of your control. And the minute you acknowledge that you are dependent on all of these systems and all of these other people, your situation is actually very contingent. That's like a deeply uncomfortable feeling, I think, for, for most people, which they're probably having right now. Hello and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we get started today, I want to correct something that I said that was incorrect in the Charlie Warzel episode and also actually in a Weeds episode I recorded right around the same time. We were talking about the IHME model, which is a coronavirus model um, that has become very influential and also has come under a lot of criticism for being revised a lot, for getting a lot incorrect. Um, But I got something incorrect about it, which is I said it had originally projected up to 240,000 deaths. Um, That's not correct. Uh, What happened there is the White House had a press conference where they had a presentation where they had a bunch of projections from the IHME model, and then they mixed in, in a very confusing way, projections from some other model that nobody actually knows what it is, which is weird. But Those things got reported together um, and conflated. And so the original IHME projections were up to 162,000 US deaths, not 240,000. So I regret that error. Anyway, on to today's show. One of my favorite conversations on the show from the past couple of years was with Jenny O'Dell. Odell is an artist in the Bay Area. She teaches art at Stanford. She has done amazing, fascinating projects, contextualizing everyday objects. Uh, And she wrote this beautiful book. year or two years ago now, called How to Do Nothing, which is a more expansive and radical and poetic book than even that title makes it sound. And I talked to her uh, after reading that book and thought we had this great conversation. And then the book really continued to blow up and it was on like President Obama's best books of the year list. And it kind of made it all over and became a bit of a, a cultural touchstone for a particular conversation people needed to have. It's funny because I, I re-listened to that conversation I had with her when I was on my own book tour and feeling a little bit burnt out and maybe really want to have another. And then coronavirus happened and a lot of the themes of her book became particularly prescient. And I don't mean here exactly the how to kind of unplug and do nothing and learn how to have leisure, but there's a lot of themes in that book about what kinds of work and particularly care work we do and don't honor and how we treat each other and themes of independence and interdependence and attentional orchestration and what do we notice and what don't we notice in the world around us and how can art somewhat antagonistically help us notice those things. And so this isn't even exactly the conversation I initially thought I wanted to have with her again, but it's the conversation that felt necessary to have right now. And it's a conversation of sort of struggling with some of the experiences we're in right now. Something I so appreciate about her work is it sits often in uncertainty and contrast and paradox. A lot of art has that wonderful quality of being able to sit with something where there isn't so much an answer as just pressures and things to notice and and manage and absorb. And so hopefully this conversation has that quality. Uh, Even just being able to talk about some of this was helpful for me. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you to hear it. I do want to say that we talk about this a bit in the show, but we're all going through something different here. And I think it's uh, important to just try to be able to have those conversations and recognize that no one conversation will encompass everybody's experience, but we're going to have to somehow 
be able to create a kind of like collective capacity to understand what we are going through individually together. And hopefully this is a small step towards that. So here is Jenny Odell. I haven't written anything uh, this whole time. I do have a, a piece coming out in The Atlantic about birds that I wrote about, I wrote before quarantine. But part of the reason I haven't written anything is because I don't, I feel like I myself am conflicted about a lot of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it'd be very easy for me to write the, like, how to do nothing in the pandemic piece. But I just, like, I don't want to. <laughs> and I feel like it's, like, sort of not appropriate or something. Why doesn't it feel appropriate? Yeah. I mean, that is, like, it's, like, something that uh, I I am not sure why. It's just, like, a gut feeling or something. And I think also just, like, I, I think everyone's, like, realizing how different everyone's circumstances are. So it's, like, you know, anything that I, like, applies to me doesn't seem like it applies to that many other people meaningfully. So... Let's start before the pandemic, actually. Um, since we talked, How to Do Nothing became this, I think, pretty interesting cultural anchor. It was even on President Obama's year-end book list. Like, what was all that like? Uh, it was very surreal, um, <laughs> especially because I think it's not the book that that a lot of people expect it to be, maybe when they pick it up, you know, whether that's based on the title or, you know, maybe they saw it on a list of kind of self-helpish books. <laughs> and then when you actually read it, it's like the types of things that I'm talking about in the book are things that you wouldn't expect to be together. And it's just sort of like this blobby thing that barely holds together. Um, and so to like, just to even know that that was popular in any way is just very surprising to me, but off, you know, also obviously rewarding. And I think like I've had the experience of a reader as a reader of having someone kind of put their finger on a, a feeling that I had that I wasn't able to articulate. And so I'm just really happy that that you know, anyone had that experience with my book. Did the success of the book make it harder for you to live out the book's message? Um, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, that was like the irony I was living with all of last year. And, you know, some of that's particular to me and my personality. I mean, there's, you kind of get the sense in the book that like, I, I really value, you know, interiority and privacy and, you know, like alone time or, you know, time with you know, a few other people, but it's generally like screened away from the public. And so I was just getting contacted by a lot more people. It's just like inevitable, right? Um, and also just kind of like felt a little bit more like on display than I was used to um, and more of the time. So I definitely had to kind of create some boundaries around that. And I honestly, before <laughs> before lockdown was still kind of trying to figure that out. So just like trying to maintain like space for for quiet and emptiness without kind of feeling guilty about it, because a lot of, you know, there's a lot of like really interesting conversations that you could be having or things you could be writing all the time. And so to just like negate that is still really difficult. What were some of the boundaries you built? Because I'm very I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the feeling <laughs> that you're somehow betraying your own luck or success or good fortune if you say no to these wonderful opportunities that are coming to you and at the same time if you say yes to them all like you completely lose yourself so like how did you negotiate that in a practical way I don't know that it was in a practical way I, I guess I mean one really concrete thing is I took my email off my website I mean that was just like a really big big one and then I attempted to put things in my calendar like you know blocks of time that needed to remain empty I was not always successful with that. But, uh, and then like, honestly, what ended up happening, which is really ironic given what the book is about, is I I like pretty much burned out and was like having like health problems, like early, like January, February, basically. And that was just like a really like, hard no from like the rest of my being. Like you can't, you just can't actually do this many things and you're going to like run yourself into the ground. You won't be able to do anything. That's like something that I, I kind of, kept like close at hand, just like as a reminder, like, oh, this is what happens if you don't do these things that feel, it might feel counterintuitive to say no. It's almost like what I tell my art students sometimes, like negative space is just as important as the other things, you know, on the page. And it's like, you have to like sort of learn to see quote unquote, nothing as something like it's something that has substance. It just doesn't appear to be anything, but it's, it's just as much a thing as things. <laughs> So I had this whole conversation, which we're tracing a little bit now, that I'd wanted to have with you going a couple months back. I actually, 
a little bit to what we're talking about right here. When I was on my book tour, I re-listened to our conversation. Um, like I put it in, I was like thinking like, what did I actually want to hear? And it was those kinds of uh, ideas that you had. And it was a real kind of tonic for me at a time when I was feeling really burnt out. And so I was very curious how all that had ended up settling for you. And then obviously everything changed. And now there is this, for a lot of people, this enforced prison of nothingness, right? You can't go out. You can't see your friends. Um, in some cases, you're actually quarantined. In some cases, you've lost your job. Uh, a lot of your book is about rooting yourself in the nature of the place you're in. There's a, a way in which now a lot of people have to do that by necessity, right? They, they're not allowed to go into the stores they used to go into, the <laughs> bars or restaurants. Like, you can go for a walk. <laughs> you can go on a hike. Yeah. That's about it. And I'm curious how you think about the difference between choosing to do nothing and having so many of the somethings taken away from you. I mean, obviously it's, this is really difficult for, I think most people and it's, you know, yeah, it's very different than, than making the choice to, you know, spend time in a certain kind of way or a certain scale of attention, knowing that you're going to return to something else. I mean, I think that's something that I thought a lot more about after the book was this like moving back and forth, like moving back and forth between solitude and then a wider conversation or, you know, the kind of like dialectical relationship between those two. And now you don't really have that. <laughs> um, you're just in one all the time. And so, yeah, I guess um, it's so hard for me to generalize or even like know what it's like for anyone else because I'm me and I happen to really enjoy solitude. And I also have all kinds of privileges. Like I still have a job and I have a job that I can do from home. I live in a neighborhood where I can walk around, although all of the all of the parks are closed. Even like the smallest little parklet that has like one bench is like roped off with caution tape. Yeah, all of these things have made it sort of livable for me. And at the same time, like I am very aware that I don't think this is common, like my kind of set of circumstances. Like the way that I feel about it is, I don't know, I just feel like it's very specific to to my set of circumstances, if that makes sense. One thing you're saying there I think is pretty widely felt actually, which is... I think it's almost hard to talk about living through this because everybody's so afraid that their experience can't generalize. Yeah. And you know, you're you're sitting in your house, right, which maybe, you know, in my case I'm, you know, with my wife and my toddler and two dogs and inside like the experience of loneliness a lot of people are having. I have the experience of desperately needing some solitude. Um, you know, the experience of Overwork I'm having is a privilege compared to the experience many people are having of forced unemployment. And, but in a way, I think that this ripping away of any sense of collective fabric from our lives has actually made it hard just to even talk about what we're going through because I think everybody's a little bit afraid to talk about what is happening to them because to do so seems like. Maybe it's violence or dismissal of what other people are going through that is so much worse, right? That they're more vulnerable to the disease itself or the economic dislocation or, or, or whatever it might be. And at the same time, I mean, one of the injuries of this disease to the whole society is ripping away these kind of social bonds of collective experience. And so to like lose that ability to just talk it through isn't helping anybody. This is like Buddhist idea of the second arrow, right? Like the arrow of suffering over suffering mm -hmm. that seems sort of relevant here. Uh, like we, yeah, like I almost want to be able to sort of like wall off some conversations and just say, yes, like this conversation can't represent everything. It just is yeah. what these people in the conversation are undergoing. Right, right, totally. Um, and I think that's like, I, I still remember like the first non-work Zoom video chat I had with my friend Kat, um, where, cause I use it for teaching, but I was just talking to my friend on it and it was a really big relief, just like really basic things to like hear, like, you know, I went to the grocery store today and it was scary. And then you're talking to someone and like, oh yeah, me too. Like just, you know, like you're like living in this like really surreal, again, specific kind of experience. And just to see that like echoed by just even like one other person, I think you're right. It is very meaningful and, or like a, you know, a group chat or something like that. And I, I'm wondering if like some of it is, um, is like specific or some of the problem is specific to social media, because I you know I talk in the book about context collapse, 
and this idea that you go on something like Twitter and you have this feeling that you're talking to sort of a group of people that you know, but you're really broadcasting it to like the general public or whoever happens to come across it for whatever reason. And in that kind of arena, everything you're saying is kind of butting up against all of these other like incredibly different experiences from different perspectives. And it like runs the risk of seeming really tone deaf. So I wonder if like, you know, maybe maybe some of the solution is to like find that in-between space where it is something, you know, not maybe not literally a group chat, but something like closer to that end of the spectrum. Or a, a podcast that yeah. goes out to hundreds <laughs> of thousands of people, but creates a weird illusion of intimacy while you're doing it. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> something like that, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of, one of the things that has been bouncing around in my head from our past conversation that felt really relevant right now is so first you talk about artists as orchestrators of attention and that part of what art is often doing in a way that as you put it in an interview with somebody is antagonistic to the status quo is kind of forcing you to see what was already there in a different way and and in our previous podcast we talked about work by other artists it was about trying to elevate maintenance you talked about an artist whose project she's in residence at the New York Department of Sanitation and her project is trying to like put um, focus on what she calls like the life instinct over the death instinct or an art of maintenance, right? Just like keeping people alive over this sort of focus on individual excellence and achievement and competition. And there's this way in which I think this crisis has forced our attention to go to what is really essential, even just in the economy. And it's a lot of this care work, right? People or service work or, you know, people... I don't think that many people miss McKinsey consultants, no specific <laughs> offense to McKinsey consultants at the moment, but you do miss childcare, right? right you do miss right. schools. You do miss, um, if your grocery store isn't working, you really miss your grocery store. Uh, you miss your friends. And there's something in that, that like, that it's sort of forced our attention to see something that maybe we knew, but didn't take that seriously until it was actually ripped away from us. It feels very profound and that like we need to like make ourselves actually look at it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned that artist uh Mirale Laterman Ukulis, um, because I actually hadn't thought about this specific piece of hers that I I think I talk about in the book, but she shook hands with hundreds of sanitation workers. I think she shook hands with like all of them and told each one of them, Thank you for keeping New York City alive. Which is just like, that's that, you know, that hits differently right now, right? Where it's like, people are suddenly very aware of like, you know, the mailman and the people picking up your trash. And, you know, like I shop at a grocery co-op that seems to be doing, you know, fairly well right now. And some of the employees there are like, they're very chipper right now in a way that like really surprises me. And I, I commented on that to my boyfriend and he was like, well, you know, it might just be because people are like treating them with respect for the first time. <laughs> like, even though this is a really scary situation, like, you know, there's that. And I, I have been, yeah, thinking about that kind of redirecting of attention, like that grocery store has the kind of now the the usual spaced out line with the like markings on the on the ground. And we were standing in the line like maybe a week ago. And it's just, you just find yourself standing near this weird part of the building that you would never stand near. Like, I, I'm i not even sure I'd ever looked at that wall. I would just walk straight into the store. And then suddenly you have all this time to, like, contemplate this wall. And, like, to me, it seemed like this kind of, like, visual metaphor for, like, everything else, which is, like, the thing that's always been here. Now you're, like, standing in a very weird relation to it and you're and you're looking at it and you have lots of time to look at it. And obviously, like, this is all in the context of something that's, like, you know, really horrific, but it does kind of align with some of the stuff that I talk about in the book in terms of, like, redirecting your attention from something that was habitual before this. Yeah, one of the lines of the book that feels resonant right now is you write that much socially necessary work is ignored or devalued as caregiving, a gendered afterthought to the real dynamics of the economy, when in reality, no shared life could do without it. And it is striking that when we had to sit down and classify essential workers, it was caregiving, right? It wasn't, you know, the heads of high-frequency trading firms. I mean, we talked in that other conversation about the way we we allocate status by how much we pay in jobs. And now we have all these essential workers and we call them heroes. And 
we in most cases pay them like shit and they're not being given often proper protective gear and so we're taking these people and like praising them as essential and treating them as disposable and uh, you know there's just such an unbelievable disconnect between our revealed reality here and our economic priorities and system in a way that i think like you have to like look at it long enough that the system learns some lessons from it or like is forced to learn lessons from it through you know labor strikes and other things right now like something i think something has to happen like i don't want to see this we are so far from the end of this that it's almost weird to have this part of the conversation but I don't want to see this go by without us learning any lessons about the secondary things that were revealed, not just that we weren't ready for a pandemic. But like, look at look at what was really here all along. Right, right. Yeah, there's, I, I mean, I feel like we've been seeing things that you just kind of can't unsee. Um, like, I, you know, I live off of Grand, kind of near Lakeshore, and when I go for walks, I sort of naturally walk up the hill and like trying to stay away from crowds. And that means that I end up in Piedmont where there are a lot of, you know, really, I mean, I'm talking about like houses that have their own tennis courts. Um, and like, I just remember like the first week that I was walking around, it was just so eerie to see like no one out except for UPS trucks and Amazon delivery. Because I go on these like same walks every day, I've had like all this time to think about like, you know, you can almost think about one of these houses as like, again, a metaphor, like how much, how many inputs go into this house, right? Like a house that has like hired help or um, like landscapers and all this stuff, all of the stuff that has to like go into that to maintain that kind of level of existence. And I feel just like hyper aware of that layer that's kind of like supporting this other layer which normally may like take that for granted. And it's just like, it feels gross. <laughs> it just feels gross to like see that like day after day and just think about it and think about how already there were so many different levels of privilege, but now it's like, if you were above a certain level, not, you're fine. And then if you weren't, if you were below it, you're like really, really, really not fine. Like you already weren't. And now you're just like falling off the cliff. And if there's anything that I think is like worth spending time doing right now. If you have time, it's just like thinking about that. Like it's time to think about that. Is there art you're thinking about in particular right now or that you're finding something in particularly right now? Well, I mean, right now I'm teaching art classes. So I'm like all of my time is taken up by trying to adapt my examples and, and assignments to like students who are at home in all different places and time zones. And so I've been trying to give them more examples of art that's kind of like made with whatever you have at hand and or or kind of casts like another perspective on on like the everyday or the you know your room or something like that. It's kind of funny because my design class uh, one of their assignments has always been to go outside and spend 15 minutes doing nothing and then write down everything that happens and that assignment is really weird right now because there's nothing, you know, like one of them turned in an assignment that was like one person walked down the street and it was really exciting. And like, that was it. That was the whole write-up. And so, yeah, I, I actually just, um, I interviewed Miranda July for City Arts and Lectures really very recently. And I think, um, so I've been thinking about her work because I was interviewing her, but also because a lot of it is very much you know, like she has a project called um, Learning to Love You More from like the early 2000s, where it had prompts for these kind of like small art assignments that were just given to the public and then they would submit their documentation. So it'd be like repair something. And then you'd get all these photos back from people of like chairs that had been repaired or or things like that. And a lot of the assignments are kind of in that spirit. It's like, look around you and see what you have and you know, do something weird with it that you've never done before. And then, and then feel connected to all of these other people who have done the same thing. Um, and you're seeing them on the site. So that's like, you know, a, something I've been thinking about. I saw that Miranda July interview go by and I saw that she said that this moment is like the ultimate creative prompt. And there's been this whole kind of interesting conversation. My colleague Constance Grady wrote a great piece about it, about this tension between feeling that 
we're trapped inside, so we should be unbelievably creative. Like, didn't Newton invent calculus while he was holed up during a pandemic? <laughs> and on the other hand, a lot of people finding this to be the ultimate in nervous, anxious distraction. I wonder, one, where you're falling on that on that spectrum, and two, like, to what degree is that even a is that even a choice we have? Yeah, I don't. It doesn't feel like a choice to me. I mean, I would, but I, I think it's hard for me to answer that because my sort of like model of quote unquote creativity is so different from, I think maybe the norm or just the sort of traditional way of thinking about creativity, which is that you're like making something. I have always had this view of it. That's more, it's like, there's like dark matter of creativity. And um, I don't presume to know when I'm being creative and when I'm not. So, I mean, I always think about, uh, the year before I went, I did my artist residency at the dump, which was, you know, like that project, the Bureau of Suspended Objects, that's still my favorite project that I've ever made and really kind of set the stage for everything, even the book after that. But there was a year before that, that was just kind of doldrums. Like I didn't make anything. Uh, I made very little. <laughs> I remember being really frustrated, kind of confused. I didn't really have a direction. I have, you know, journal entries where to, to prove this to myself and in retrospect, it's so clear to me that that's actually when everything was happening. And then by the time I got to the dump, like that was just kind of the the fruition of like something that had been happening for a really long time. And then now it's like I go back and I read those entries and there are things in my journals that are like almost verbatim sentences that ended up in the book that I just didn't realize I had already written. So they're already in my brain. And so I think like, because that's my model of, of making things where the, the part that doesn't look like making is like maybe even more important than the part that reads as making to me, like feeling too anxious to make anything right now, it's not an either or for me between that and being creative. And also it allows me to like, just be okay with, I mean, like it's hard for me to imagine not being too anxious to do anything right now. And I don't, I don't really hold that against myself. I'm just waiting. I'm just like trying to be patient. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for The Gray Area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. In that Constance Grady essay I mentioned, which I'll, I'll put in show notes because it's really worth reading, she makes this, I think, really important point that if you still have a job, which is by no means a, um, a job you can do at home in particular, which is by no means a sure thing, that there are a lot of people for whom feeling productive is sort of paradoxically like one of the only things that feels soothing right now. You know, like if you can be productive right now, you're safer, 
in terms of your employment and you're getting something done and this time isn't being taken from you. And yet that like one, there's a kind of grotesqueness to that in, in its obvious ways, but also kind of finding rest through work isn't really restful. And so this sort of way in which it's put a lot of people onto this odd, like either treadmill of enforced leisure or treadmill of enforced anxious productivity, where it's like the thing you kind of need to soothe you, which is either a kind of true rest or the true security of being able to have a job that you can do work at is always a little bit out of reach. It feels to me like a very signal emotional experience of the moment. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I've been thinking about this question a lot. And I, when quarantine started, I was on spring break. So I really wasn't doing anything. And I had planned to take a train like across the country. So I obviously wasn't doing that. And so I had this kind of bizarrely empty time. And so when school started up again, and I, you know, the, the learning curve is very steep with teaching online. I initially was just relieved to have something that like provided structure. And then also I think like this in some small way, like feeling like I was purpose, I was acting purposefully, like I'm providing like value to somebody, you know? And of course, like now I feel like just as overworked as ever. I just wonder if some of the like wanting to work and feel productive is actually just like wanting to be connected to other people. You know, like it's for me, it's kind of therapeutic to like see my students, even if they're in this like weird grid on my screen. And for us to all just kind of just see each other and be like, okay, we're doing this thing. And I don't like none of us are pretending that like, you know, making uh, weird photoshops is like the most important thing to be doing right now. <laughs> but it's like the value of it, I think, is more just that like, here is something that that we can do that's like something that you can think about for, you know, an hour and kind of get absorbed in and and maybe like try something like new and weird and be experimental and then go back to thinking about all the stuff that you've been thinking about all the time. So for me, it's like not so much of a, the, the treadmill feeling is like, I think maybe just having like, even for a, a, just a portion of the day, like some kind of like traction or something where you are, you're doing something and you're doing something like with or for other people. Oh, uh, that, that brings up a lot for me. I found the issue of what makes me feel connected versus disconnected has been unpredictable. Hmm. I like doing my work because it seems in some way that maybe I'm helping because a lot of my work is trying to report on coronavirus and the economic dislocation and, and and how might we do fix it or do better or get through it. And I find, and like this is the Rosetta Stone to my entire career, understanding something is calming. Um, like feeling yeah. like I have a handle on a problem is like one of the only ways I can kind of manage a problem uh, emotionally. And so like that is helpful. On the other hand, um, I have never felt lonelier during this whole thing than on Zoom calls. Mm. When I'm on these sort of big Zoom calls and nobody can quite figure out when to speak and I'm having this like simulacrum of social connection, like that is when I feel absolutely worst. Mm. And it's been surprising to me. I've started ducking them. And maybe I'm not saying it's other people or Zoom, but it's very likely just me. But there's something about them that makes me feel intensely lonely because like it's close to the thing that I'm craving, but I, I can't, it's not the thing I'm craving it. Like it, it mostly highlights a negative space for me. Yeah. And there's this way in which the, my work translated to my home in a way that um, my rest didn't. It's funny to realize how much of what distracted me from anxious productivity or or what what I cared about more maybe than anxious productivity was simply other people. So seeing family and seeing friends and going out and going to see a show or a concert or whatever it might be. And that like my work translates just fine to the desk in my house. And none of that does. And that's been interesting, actually, to realize like how much better I am at working from home than being social from home or resting from home. Um, like some of that, it's not what I would have predicted. Yeah, it's like, well, I think there's a certain type of work that just expands to fill a vacuum, right? Like it doesn't matter where you are. It can sort of, I mean, that's sort of what's happened with with my work. Like I, I thought I was going to get all this time back because I wouldn't be commuting, to Stanford twice a week, but it turns out that all of that time is just taken up by me trying to figure out how this is all going to be online and recording video tutorials and like 
it's like I'm back to just like moving windows around on my screen all day. Um, and that can just go on forever. And then I think like maybe, maybe like some of the difficulty is like the stuff that's not that, like have a one-on-one conversation with a friend or just go for a walk or, or sleep or just like read a, uh, like read a book that's not about anything related to what's happening right now. Like that sort of demarcation feels super arbitrary because it's in the same space. So you just have to kind of be like, all right, I'm switching my brain over to this now. And that feels like kind of impossible. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just like speaks to the nature of like this type of work that like it fortunately and unfortunately can be done everywhere. But as you say, like the other things do not translate into this and they don't kind of fare well when they're mixed in the same space with with work. It also, uh, something that I just find really hard about working from home, even in normal circumstances, but is really hard now is just the collapse of any boundaries, right? The line between what is work and what is life and what is productivity and what is leisure and like what is inward facing and what is outward facing. It's surprising to me how much different spaces help that along and also transition times. Something that is always surprising me about being at home. I don't, I, I commute into SF for work most days, um, you know, in, in, the, in the before time. And I hate that commute. It's like 45 minutes an hour each way. And also, I miss having some kind of commute because that's time when I mentally shift from one mode to another. Maybe I listen to a podcast, but it's like a preparation. Whereas like here, I wake up <laughs> and my desk is in the baby's room. And so it's like the baby, you know, either if I'm not taking care of the baby that morning, like he leaves the room and I come into it or I take care of him um, for a while. And then like when my time, uh, you know, when it's time to pass him over, like I go into his room and just like there's no space between one thing and another in a way that I find makes it very hard to do that context switching. Like I'm, I'm just kind of like in a in like a lowest common denominator version of myself for all of them. Yeah, totally. I actually turned my desk. Um, it is now facing a direction that doesn't make any sense. Like if you walk into my room, it's like facing the bed. Like it's, I, I basically just turned it because I thought that it would make my Zoom backgrounds show up better <laughs> in class because I didn't want, it's weird. Okay, so on the one hand, I don't want my students to see me at home in the lecture because I, because I think, you know, I'm just imagining like what the, this is like for them and it's sort of depressing And so during the lecture, I have this crazy, I have a different Zoom background for every lecture based on what we're talking about. But then also like in the sort of like video tutorials for like Photoshop, I always include parts of my home because I also like kind of want to relate and be like, oh, well, this is, I'm a real person and I'm in this apartment. So I'm like, it's weird, it's sort of contradictory, but, um, but I've noticed that like turning the desk is kind of helpful just in terms of like, this is a different situation right now. Like my desk is facing a different way. And like, maybe when this is over, I'll turn it back or something. But I I found that to be like strangely helpful just in terms of like, yeah, signaling to yourself that this is like um, an unusual situation in which like all of these things are mixed together and things are going to feel weird and you're going to have to adapt to them. I, I think this gets to this really interesting tension. So I was growing a coronavirus beard for a while, um, which is another way of saying I wasn't in any way taking care of my personal grooming. <laughs> but I, I thought of it as like, well, it's an abnormal time, like, you know, let things be abnormal. And then I shaved it the other day because every time I looked at myself, I looked haggard and strange and not like myself. <laughs> and it gets to something that... I think is tricky, which is struggling with this impulse to take a like a wellness approach to this period and ask, how can I best manage my feelings and be my best self and like meditate through it and call myself and maybe try to look on the bright side and enjoy the time I get to spend with my family and, and all of that versus to try to let the alarm and agitation actually be what I feel and to not get used to this and to not try to make it in any way normal and to try to like live in live in the emergency so that I'm able to see it clearly and, and learn from it more clearly. Like there's like a little bit of a tension between like numbing and experiencing. And I'm, I'm curious if you experienced that or, or what you think between those. Yeah, I think I decided kind of early on to just be really patient with myself and like there's this feeling that you need to like get it right or something or you need to you need to make it better like you need to make yourself feel better I don't know there's just a lot of like longing for 
some kind of like improvement all the time. And I, and I think that that's like, that itself is a really interesting feeling that you can sit with, but I I've also been just kind of trying to let go of it. Like, I don't feel good right now. Why would I, you know, like, why would anyone feel okay right now? And, you know, like every day I have like 20 different emotions and it's like, you just kind of have to, you know, like you're in them, but you can also just kind of watch them at the same time. And I think like, that's one of the really nice things about just observation in general and like kind of trying to take on the mentality of even something like deep listening, which I talk about in the book, the Pauline Oliveros idea of just listening outward and inward to everything that can be listened to without judgment. So like purely observation without, you know, rushing to kind of like analyze or appropriate some kind of feeling. Um, And I think that that's been, I mean, it's weird to call it helpful. It's just kind of how I've been getting by. And then I have found it also very useful to it kind of in that same state of mind, like I've been keeping a pretty, pretty deadpan, but very consistent and detailed journal where it's just like, you know, these are the dreams I had. I did this. I went for a walk. I saw this kind of bird. I had this for dinner. I'm not trying to make this writing interesting. Like I'm just, I'm just noting down like things that happen. And then I also have this um, camera on a tripod that's pointed out of my window and I've been taking the same photo. The camera has not moved for more than a week now, like several times a day. It's just pointed through the blinds, like at the sky. And occasionally I scroll through them just to like show myself that time is passing. Like the sky looks different. Even on these days that we've been having where it's like gray all day and it seems like time isn't passing. Like you can look at these photos and see like moment to moment change. And I think these are all just like ways of like feeling like time is moving because it's really easy right now to feel like you're living the same day over and over again and you don't know when that's going to end. You, you mentioned a couple times here keeping a journal, particularly, I guess, in maybe all the time, but in tough times. You talked about it during your year of doldrums and finding that a lot of the book ended up in that journal first and, and now you're keeping this deadpan journal. I try, I, I want to be a journaler. I try every so often. <laughs> and really the only time I can journal seemingly successfully is on planes when I try to do it in my normal life, it just ends up being uh, to-do lists. I'm curious how you journal. Like, how do you create space for it? How do you make it a make it a practice? Like, is it something you force yourself to do, or you know, there's a, a drive to do it? Like, g- g- give me the give me the Jenny O'Dell path to journaling. It's very unsystematic. I mean, I've I've kept journals since I was old enough to write, and I have all of them, which is really crazy. So I I would say like my default is I normally write by hand every day. There have been definitely periods of time where it hasn't been every day, but I would say for the last maybe more than a year, I have written every day. And I normally like writing by hand because it's not on a screen and it's something I can do like outside. And I think because you write slower than you think, it makes you have to slow down, uh, which for me is like huge. Um, But uh, then I I think that there's, I don't know, I'm sort of a big believer in like flexible systems that you set up that it's more about like what you're using the system for than the system itself. Like, I think it's really easy to kind of get overly attached to some system for no good reason. And so, you know, like sometimes I don't feel like writing in a notebook and then there's a while where it's, I just have a bunch of typed pages on my computer that I try to keep in a folder somewhat organized. Right now I'm using this program called day one for, for really like no reason. I just kind of started using it um, because you can put in one photo. It only lets you put in one photo kind of per day. And usually the photo is just of something that I saw on my walk. And then the, the text is just like whatever I did. And that seems to be working. But I think it's like, you know, whatever, whatever makes it like easy for you to do it. There was a period of time where I was like probably dealing with depression in the past year and I was finding it like harder I've never really like found it hard to journal, but I was finding it hard and that was like really worrying me. And my sort of solution was to come up with like five, not really questions, just like five categories. And I would just write that and like a colon and then answer it. So it's like, like physical. It'd be like, I have a headache and my back hurts. And then it'd be like mental. It'd be like, I'm very stressed out. And then it'd be like something that I learned today. And it'd be like some weird factoid or something. And there'd be like five, I don't remember what they were, but they were like five of these things that like make it so that you don't have to sit down with a blank page and just kind of come up with something. Like they're just 
things that you answer very straightforwardly and you just do that like day after day. And I kind of like got through that period in that way. So I think it's just kind of like figuring out a system that makes it feel um, as like frictionless as possible to like start writing. Cause I think once you start, most people have a lot to get off their chest. And I think it's like a pretty big relief to just write it down. I use day one too. I actually totally love that program, but yeah, it's collapsed into the, it's a beautiful list taking app. And (laughs) I I just like endlessly, like I I started it with all good intentions. And now just every day it's like, here are the emails I have to return. And I don't know. The reason I ask it is because, you know, you were talking earlier about your particular approach to creativity and you've written kind of beautiful essays on how ideas grow and kind of letting that dark matter come up. And I really believe that. Like, I I think it's true that um, you need to give your subconscious time to process what you're going through. And then you need space in which that processing can burble up to the surface so you can see it, right? There's like this line about, you know, you got to let the mud clear to see the fish. And it's something I'm thinking about now. I mean, it's a little bit related to that question of trying to just like let yourself feel that this is bad. But the natural feeling when you feel it's bad is to try to distract from it. And to the, you know, certainly as somebody who like has to cover it and, and wants to try to like learn lessons from it that will help us inform politics going forward, it feels really important that there's space to hear, like what and to process. And on the other hand, given that there's so much enforced like sitting around, it is somehow harder for me than ever to like listen. Because I guess to some degree, like, I don't want to feel any of that and I don't really want to hear it and I'm tired and, you know, my kid is running around and it's, yeah, I'm finding, I'm finding creating space for processing feels important. Um, and it also feels a little decadent and also just emotionally difficult to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think also like one really big, you know, qualifier of my experience is like, I don't have a kid. Um, it's just me and my boyfriend in this apartment. And so I think like that's seems like a really big part of it, right? It's like, you know, I've been able most days to go for at least like an hour walk, which I think I actually feel like that's very decadent. And I am able to do that because of these circumstances. And like that is definitely, those are the times when I am able to like, I mean, it doesn't really feel like processing, but I think it probably is. (laughs) And even just like a small removal, right? Like, I think it's hard to think about or impossible to think about something while you're in it. And then right now there's this irony that like many of us are stuck at home, but we also are kind of trapped with our phones and our laptops. And so it's like, on the one hand, you feel very sort of deprived in a sensory way. On the other hand, you're just like kind of, I mean, I feel like held hostage by my computer and my phone and I'm just constantly looking at them. And so for me, it's like going outside or going for a walk that is the way that I'm able to get away from that. But I think, you know, not everyone is able to do that. And I think it's a matter of like, yeah, making that kind of that step away. But of course, like you're saying, it can feel very arbitrary and difficult. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. You wrote a great piece uh, sometime last year uh, after How to Do Nothing about how the critique you've taken seriously of that book and that it's burbled up for you in your kind of moments of processing is about 
not letting there be too individualistic an explanation for things and trying to see more and think more about interdependence. And this moment seems to really literalize interdependence, right? Like you catch the disease from other people, you stop it through collective action with other people. I'm curious how your thinking has evolved on that. And like, if you think this sort of extremely clear demonstration of interbeing is going to do to kind of change the way we see our relations going forward. I mean, I, I'm hopeful about the combination of, yeah, like this sort of opportunity to the really extreme opportunity to think about how your actions influence others in ways that are hard for you to see. And there's something particularly about a virus where it's like, it's not just that it's like you're in a network. Like it's all of the people who have interacted with you who then may be affecting the the people that you go on and interact with. Like you have to think like so many kind of stages ahead there. And so there's, there's a combination of that with then, you know, for some people like the time to just sit and think about that. I think it's hard to imagine that not having a pretty big effect on how we think about, you know, the placement of an individual in a network. And then also I think maybe in that kind of like what what you were talking about earlier, like people being kind of worried about voicing their experiences because everyone's circumstances are so different. I think actually just that consideration of how different um, people's circumstances are and how the wealth of some people is affecting the lives of other people. That too, I think is something that I I hope, you know, people remember from this experience. I mean, I think it here too, it has this funny connection to attention. Um, it, it made me think reading that essay that a lot of Buddhist literature, which I've been reading for a long time. I mean, if you read like Thich Nhat Hanh, it's all about these ideas of interbeing. And if you really look at the peach or the leaf or the desk or whatever, you just kind of see everything else reflected back in it. And you talk in that essay about a kind of a conversation between Judith Butler and Sonara Taylor about how, you know, even just like going down the street, going into the coffee shop, you're seeing this trim and, and asking for help. You're seeing this tremendous amount of recognition, even if only implicitly, of how much of our daily lives is built on is built on other people. And it's striking to me, like in the Buddhist tradition, this idea of just like what unbelievably intense constant mental focus it takes to see the obvious right that you're there's always this debate between do you need to work at this or you just need to work at undoing like what is making you miss what is right in front of you and i always thought that's a really interesting debate because obviously it's true that we're deeply deeply dependent on each other and we sort of have to downplay that it feels like sometimes to move through the world and now it's like you can't downplay it. And I wonder if there's not some way to to slightly recalibrate our social vision here. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's making me think of uh, maybe like six or seven years ago, I was making a lot of art about infrastructure. So like wastewater treatment plants and, you know, like the dump and things like that. And I remember having this experience of like walking around my apartment and just looking at every thing that I feel like is in part of an interior space and thinking about how it's connected to the outside world. So like the outlet on the wall or the faucet or the toilet, you know, like all of these things that you think, oh, like that's, that's mine, that's in my apartment. It only functions because it's connected to this much larger network that is of course run by people that you are dependent on in that way. And I, I remember like that was is so obvious, right? Like anyone can do that. Walk around your apartment and look at these things, right? But it's it's like dizzying and it's overwhelming. It's like something that I've been interested in for a long time as an artist. It's like how do you how do you approach that complexity and like kind of hold it in your mind and not walk away from it? And I I feel like part of what the resistance to that besides just habit is that people really want to feel like they're in control. It's like really scary to to feel like anything is outside of your control. And the minute you acknowledge that you are dependent on all of these systems and all of these other people, your situation is actually very contingent. That's like a deeply uncomfortable feeling, I think, for for most people, um, which they're probably having right now. Um, and I think it's good. Um, I think it's like good, good to sit with that and just like acknowledge the truth of that. Like there's no there's just really no getting around it. it it's it's just there whether you 
want to acknowledge it or not. And, and yeah, hopefully just, you know, overall, maybe we'll all have had some time to really like, look, like stare at that for a while. (laughs) Yeah. There's this weird, almost paradoxical thing right now of how little control you have and how much influence you have simultaneously. Like on the one hand, you don't have control over this pandemic coming to America. You don't have control over like what everybody else does and how much spread there is. And is there enough PPE in the hospital system and and all the rest of it? And on the other hand, you have to take very extraordinary measures because if you start a chain of contagion, you could end up killing the parent of someone you've never met you know, who's like nine rings of the the social network away from you. And it, it, it's funny in that way that recognizing it to be like this level of interdependence simultaneously takes a lot of control away from us, but also is this reminder of how much more widely our actions reverberate than we often realize. Right. And I, I think maybe it sort of suggests like a different way of thinking about action where I think that kind of like something that goes hand in hand with the the sort of like bootstrapper and individualistic uh, mindset is like that you like act on discrete things with intention and then you achieve your desired results and they're sort of like very cut and dried cause and effect. And I think there's even like a version of art that is like this where it's like I am an artist, capital A, and I made a thing and here's the thing and you can buy it. And then on the other hand, you have like the the sort of model of the individual, which I'm kind of trying to champion in the book, which is like, yes, I am me. I am some kind of entity, but I'm kind of just like the intersection of all of these different forces, which are constantly shifting and which are collectively making up me and my experience of myself. And so it's it's not that I don't exist or I'm meaningless. It's just that the way the, the way I'm sort of composed is is out of all of these like threads and connections. And to act in that kind of context, action obviously means something very different where it's like, yes, I can still act and I can I can put things into motion in the world, but they will kind of continue to unfold outward for me in ways that are maybe unpredictable. And then I am in turn am being influenced and in some ways like determined by the the ripples of other people's actions somewhere else in the network. And I think that again, it's it's something that's hard to hold in your mind, but you can have, and I, th- I think that's what I was trying to grapple with in that essay about Emerson, which is like, you can have both. Like you you are an individual, but you are also completely determined by everything around you. And the truth is like, it encompasses both of those things. It's such a weird thing to really sit with. I've been reading this book by um, this economist, Robert uh, H. Frank called Under the Influence. And I recommend it to people. And it's all about how much of our day-to-day behavior is influenced by social contagion. Like we, I think everybody's now beginning to think a lot about contagion and networks and how that might influence the transmission of virus. But it heavily, I mean, whether or not you smoke, like the determinant is do the people around you smoke. Whether or not you eat meat, the determin- the determinant is do the people around you eat meat. Like are, what religion are you like on and on and on. And it's not that you can't, not that there aren't counterexamples, right? People break away from cults. They are outliers in their own communities. But overwhelmingly, the influence of other people on us is just much stronger than we like to give credit for because we want not just this myth, but there is some truth to the idea that we are individuals and could make other decisions. And it just becomes a very strange space of trying to negotiate how much credit we deserve or blame we deserve for what we do, how much control we really have given how easy it is for our cultures to influence us. It's a little bit annihilating to think like this and it can kind of get you lost. And on the other hand, it's just clearly true. Like we know it from like every piece of research and you almost want to think about, you almost want to think about individuals as like the input function is their community. um, And like they are the output of that with some randomness built into it and some decision-making built into it. But nobody wants to think of themselves like that. We want to think of ourselves like, you know, Emerson's, solitary, uninfluenced voice, even amidst the crowd, but we're not. Yeah, it's it's definitely sort of mind-bending. And it's actually making me think of this uh, this book. It's not out yet, but a book that I recently read about bird behavior by Jennifer Ackerman, who wrote The Genius of Birds. That was my gateway birding book. And, you know, it's similar to The Genius of Birds. It's kind of like 
illuminating things about bird behavior and intelligence that are not what you would, most people would expect for birds. But there, there starts to be like this interesting question of like, okay, there are identifiable behaviors that certain birds do in a way, but you, they cannot really be totally pinned down sometimes. Like, yes, a certain type of bird is instinctually knows how to build a certain type of nest. But like within that, they're like clearly making all these kinds of like decisions about how to do that. And so like even outside of, you know, humans, like I think you see that same kind of like it's a thing, but it's not a thing. Like it's like an emergent behavior or something that can be sort of identified. But um, when you really like zoom in, there seem to be cases of like agency and it's sort of like constantly going back and forth. So um, I just I read that whole book and I just kept thinking about humans the whole time. Um, like that this is all seems very applicable to humans and how like, you know, things like adaptation, like how does a, how does a population of something like collectively change in response to something? It's just, yeah, it's super interesting. Has your birding or relationship just with the, the natural geography you inhabit changed during any of this? Well, um, so I haven't been to a park since before quarantine started here. So the birds that I have seen are the ones that I can see from my balcony or on my walks. And so I think I have developed more of an appreciation for like the birds that I thought I knew, like uh, house finches are incredibly common birds. Like they're all over the place. Um, They have very long conversational sounding songs. And one just because I can see it now because I turned my desk and I can see part of this tree now. Uh, There was one that landed right outside my window and I noticed I mean, these are birds, I've seen them forever. Like I I would call myself very familiar with them and they have like a red spot on the back or at least this one did. And I was just like, wow, I've never, I just, I had no idea that they look like that on, you know, from that angle. Um, so I've been having a lot of like experiences like that or even like the crows that I talk about in the book that always come to the balcony, still like noticing new weird things about them. <laughs> so I would say it's kind of like shrunk the scale of which birds I'm looking at. And it means that I notice more, um, which is like, again, these are awful circumstances, but that I do really love that feeling. Like I love the feeling of like something you thought you knew turns out to be much more complex or there was just something you really didn't notice about it. So I would say, yeah, there's like maybe a handful of species of birds. Like this is for me, this is going to be like the year of the goldfinches because it's just goldfinches everywhere on my block. And I've just been spending a lot of time looking at them and listening to them. So I think it's actually a nice place to to come to a close. So I always ask for book recommendations or if you want uh, art recommendations. When you were on the show last time, you recommended Natural Causes by Barbara Ehrenreich, which I read and was great. And The Nature and Functions of Dreaming and Cult's Faith and Healing and The Spell of the Sensuous. So like that's what, that's what we've already got from you. I'm curious if you have anything that has affected you since then or that you feel is applicable to the moment here? Yeah. So I picked three that I thought would be good, particularly now that I have read recently. So one is a book called Give People Money by Annie Lowry. And the subtitle is How Universal Basic Income Would End Poverty, Revolutionize Work, and Remake the World. And I recommend this book because I just think it's a really good overview and introduction um, for anyone who is I don't know, interested in universal basic income. I just think it's like impressive to be able to like give so many perspectives on something in a fairly balanced way, I think, and just really like giving a a good solid overview, like as a starting point. I think like right now, a lot of us are thinking about social safety net and the things we're going to have to do to be able to support people. And so it seems like a good time to read about UBI, in my opinion. Are are you, and you're not fucking with me here? No. No. (laughs) <laughs> so Why? Annie's my wife. Oh my god, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> That's great. No, that that makes that recommendation. That makes that recommendation all the more pure. Oh my god, what if I had said it was terrible? <laughs> Oh, that's really funny. Um, An no, anti recommendation. Really, I yeah, no, I really loved. It. I have it with me right now, and I'm looking at how many post its I put in it. So, um, that's amazing. <laughs> Um, she'll be very chuffed to hear that okay that's great um that's okay so um (laughs) all right so that's number one okay number two is 
Lurking, How a Person Became a User by Joanne McNeil. And this came out recently. And it's kind of a, it's a little bit hard to describe, but I would say it's about online communities um, and and what online community could and should mean and has a lot of just like really interesting, it's just incredibly well-researched, very detailed um, and has a lot of great moments about like, you know, early bulletin board systems, but also like that moment when everyone was leaving Facebook to join Ello <laughs> um, and just kind of thinking about what, what it is, what is a humane and sort of inclusive and fair, like online community or model of online community as opposed to kind of what we have right now. So I think I I wrote in my blurb of it that it inspired me to be more, uh, no, not in my blurb. I tweeted about it, that it inspired me to be more precise about my critiques of social media. I think it's just very precise and kind of like looking at uh, what's useful and what is kind of nefarious um, and harmful. So um, since we're all online a lot right now, I think that that's uh, my second recommendation. And then the last one is not out yet, but it will be out very soon. And it's by um, David Sibley, who wrote the Sibley Bird Guides. Um, they're kind of like the some of the standard guides that you would find um, for... I have Sibley Birds West. That's my guide. Um, so he has a book coming out called What It's Like to Be a Bird. And the subtitle is What Birds Are Doing and Why. And the reason I recommend it is that it is limited to birds that are reasonably easy to observe in North America. So like backyard birds. And this is a book that I I think he wrote in the introduction. He originally was thinking about writing for children, but then realized that it would be equally interesting to adults. So for anyone out there who, you know, has kids and wants to, you know, start getting them interested in birds, I think this is a really great one. And it's just so detailed, right? It's like all of these, all the little things that like a crow does or a mockingbird, like these birds that you are probably seeing outside of your window. If you're seeing birds outside of your window, it's very detailed and it'll give you kind of like a new lens um, with which to look at them. Jenny O'Dell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Jenny O'Dell for being here. Thank you, of course, to all of you for being here. Uh, I made this call out a couple of days ago um, on the Madeline Miller episode, but I think you can maybe see in the podcast. I'm, I'm trying to expand in this era who we're talking to. There's going to be a lot of episodes about coronavirus and the economy and the things that we are very directly going through now, the 2020 election. And I also don't want to lose sight that there's more to the world, even right now than that. And at the very least, even if there isn't for some of us, I think that there is something healthy about being able to take a break and listen to other things get considered. So if there are just interesting thinkers, people who you would like to hear on this podcast, who you think would be great on it and are not the kind of person that I always see, um, obviously, as a guest, or you just don't think maybe we know, email us at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Um, as always, thank you to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing. Ezra Klein shows a Vox Media podcast production. Mm-hmm.